passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, This morning, we are finally uh, starting a new series. Uh, We're going to be in 1 Timothy for the next few months or so. Uh, 1 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul. It was written for his protege, Timothy, his good friend, Timothy. Uh, It was written near the end of Paul's life uh, to Timothy because Timothy had just become uh, the leader of the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes to Timothy with these instructions here because he wants Timothy to know how he is to live with, how he is to lead, and how he is to love this church. Now, 1 Timothy, uh, we we all know it's in the Bible, but it might be a lesser-known book to some of us. And so I think it's appropriate as we approach this book to just take some time and look at why this book is important for us. Yes, we here at Crosswinds believe the entire Bible is alive, it's active, it's relevant, has much to teach us. But beyond just that general belief here in the authority of God's word, is there anything particularly important for us here at Crosswinds and Spencer that God is trying to teach us that is important for us to learn from this book from 1 Timothy? And as I was wrestling through that this morning, or excuse me, this past week, I realized there were four reasons, at least four reasons, why First Timothy is so important for us as a church right now. So as we, uh, as we jump into this book, let's just take a, a few minutes and look at why we should study First Timothy. So why should we study First Timothy? The first reason for us here at Crosswinds is because we are a young church. We are a young church. Now, what it means to be a church, what it means to be a healthy church, that's, that's important for any church. It doesn't matter how old or how young they are, but it's especially important for a church that is still in its formational stage. Here in a few months, when, when we get to April, we'll reach our third birthday as a church. That means that we're still young, we're still discerning who we are, we're still trying to figure out what God's unique calling for us to, to seek the welfare of Spencer is. And I don't think there's a better way for us to understand who we are called to be in Spencer than to first understand who God wants us to be as a church. We are a young church. It's important for us to understand what it means to be a church. And at the same time that we want to be a a church that is looking outward, that can contribute to our community, that can bless our community, we also want to establish healthy church patterns. Next week, we're going to look at uh, verses 3 through 20 of chapter 1. But when we, uh, when we get there, we're going to notice in verse 10, it says this. Paul refers to sound doctrine. He's referring to false teaching, and he says, you know what? Stay away from anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. This word sound is an important word for us not just this morning, but the rest of our time in First Timothy, because it's actually a medical term. It is oftentimes used in ancient Greek to refer to health. And so what Paul is praying for, what Paul is asking, exhorting Timothy toward, as we look at First Timothy, is to seek church health, to be a healthy church. I mean, just think about this metaphor of health. 
When we, we think about what it means to be physically healthy, what is it that we have to do? Well, first and foremost, we have to establish healthy rhythms of physical activity. We can't just sit on our couch all day, watch Netflix and watch TV and expect to be healthy. So we have to have healthy physical activity, physical rhythms. But at the same time, we also need to eat healthy. Middle school boys, high school boys, I'm sorry to say this, you can't eat pizza rolls the rest of your life and expect to be healthy. If we want to be physically healthy, we need a healthy input, we need to eat healthy food, and we need to have healthy activity. In the same way, for a church to be healthy, we need healthy input, we need a a healthy doctrine or a healthy helping of God's word interpreted rightly, and we need to have healthy activity, the right rhythms for us as a church family. If we were to take this metaphor even further, as we're seeking church health this morning, it is vital for us to establish these patterns of church health, of, of eating God's word, so to speak, of, of living healthily in our rhythms as a church family. It's important for us to do that while we are still a young church. We want this to be second nature by the time we reach a, a life stage of our church where it is difficult for us to change. And as a young church, First Timothy speaks a great deal into our situation. We want to be a healthy church. We want to be a church that glorifies God. And while First Timothy isn't a, a book that is a three steps to church health kind of book, it gives us the bedrock and the foundation to what it means, uh, for what it means to be a healthy church each and every week. So that's our first reason. We're a young church. We want to we develop healthy patterns as a church. Second reason for, for us to study First Timothy is, uh, is not only that we are a, a young church, but also that you have a young pastor. You have a young pastor that tries to compensate for his age by wearing a sports coat every now and then, uh, which is completely different uh, from his norm. You may recall that if you, if you remember Timothy from the New Testament, Timothy is relatively young. In the book of Acts, we see that Paul encounters Timothy on one of his missionary journeys, and he asks Timothy's mother if he can bring Timothy along with him on his future journeys. Now, most people believe that, that when Paul first encounters Timothy, Timothy is in his late teens or his early 20s. He spends the next couple decades traveling with Paul, seeking and serving with Paul throughout Asia Minor, throughout Europe on his missionary journeys. We fast forward a couple decades and we get to the book of 1 Timothy. When 1 Timothy is written, that means that Timothy is somewhere in his mid to late 30s when this book is written. He's still young. He's still green. This is one of his first full-time positions in ministry as a leader of a church. Up before this point, he's been Paul's assistant on missionary journeys, or he's only served as a temporary fill-in while Paul is doing other things. So, if Timothy is considered young at age 35 to 38, the natural question is, what does that make me? I, I don't like bringing up my age here because I don't like reminding you of how old I am, uh, but I'm 28. That means, uh, perspective, that means that uh, I'm anywhere from 7 to 10 years younger than Timothy, who was considered to be young as a pastor in Ephesus. 
Nope, not, not quite. Uh, now, each March, our denomination has a, a conference uh, for, all of the, uh, for all the pastors in our district who are part of the Evangelical Free Church in uh, Iowa and in Missouri, and we meet in Des Moines. Last March was the first time I went to this conference. I wanted to build some relationships with the other pastors in our district, uh, in our denomination. And I thought, you know, if, if I meet one or two pastors that are in a similar life stage as me, that's just a bonus. In fact, uh, I came into this time actually praying that that would be what God would provide for me. And so I registered, and I got really excited because I saw that one of the breakout sessions was for young pastors, in the district. And I was like, all right, God, you have answered my prayer. That's exactly what I was looking for. I had the chance to rub shoulders with, with other pastors who are facing the same unique challenges of balancing life and ministry as I am trying to learn on the fly. And I come to this meeting and I go to it and I look through the door and I see everyone has gray hair. And I, and I look at my itinerary and I'm like, I got to be in the wrong place. And I wasn't in the wrong place. I was just clearly in the wrong vocation. <laughs> I've, I've been a pastor here for, for three and a half years, going on four years. Sometimes it feels like I've aged three and a half decades. Uh, every ministry is, is challenging. It comes with unique challenges. That's especially true for young pastors. I find a great deal of refuge in First Timothy and Second Timothy because I can relate so much to Timothy. I can relate to his insecurities. I can relate to his inadequacies. I can relate to the times where he has really no idea how to move forward. First Timothy is an incredible book for me, but it's not just for me. It's also an incredible book for you as well. You see, it is, it is a unique challenge being a young pastor. It is also a unique challenge being a, a member of a church with a young pastor. There are unique challenges that you guys go through. I, I get that. I haven't been in ministry for decades. I can't speak from experience about dealing with struggles of of raising teenagers. I haven't watched my parents age and die. I haven't gone through seasons of job change and life crisis. There's a legitimate sacrifice on your part to be a part of Crosswinds and Spencer. There are unique challenges that come with this church. It was certainly true for Timothy's church as a 38-year-old. And it's certainly true of our church with me being a 28-year-old. I I don't say this lightly. There is a special place in heaven for the people of Crosswinds and Spencer. You guys have been unbelievably patient, unbelievably kind and gracious while I've figured out what it means to be a pastor. And for the church in Ephesus... And for us here at Crosswinds and Spencer, 1 Timothy means a great deal. It matters a great deal to us because of your pastor's age. This book is extremely relevant for us today. But there's not just similarities between my life stages and Timothy's life stages. There's also similarities between all of us and Timothy's personality. In fact, that's our third reason to study this book. Timothy is an example of God using an ordinary person with ordinary obedience to do extraordinary things. Let me say that again. Timothy is an example of, of God using an ordinary person with ordinary obedience to do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. 
As we look at Timothy and his personality, I think that all of us can relate to him in some degree. As we look at the picture of Timothy from the New Testament, first and foremost, we see that he feels too inexperienced to serve in ministry. He feels too young for the responsibilities that have been given to him. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you don't feel too young, but you feel too young in your faith to serve in the church. Perhaps you feel unqualified because you don't know the Bible as well as the person who's right next to you. You don't know enough. You don't know where to start. Maybe you feel that way at home. You feel as though you are not qualified, husbands, to lead your wife in prayer and Bible study. Wives, maybe you feel the same way about your husband. You don't know how to talk to them about Jesus, even though you want to, even though you know you should. Parents, you you don't know how to teach your kids uh, uh, how to follow Jesus. I think we can all relate to Timothy's insecurities to some degree. But the New Testament also tells us that Timothy was shy in the face of opposition. He was shy in the face of opposition. When we look at Paul, he's a larger-than-life character. I, I love Paul, but I can't relate to Paul one bit. Paul sees every opportunity to advance the gospel. People approach him and say, Paul, we're going to kill you, so you stop talking about Jesus. And Paul says, that's great. I get to be with Jesus. They say, okay, well, well, never mind. We'll just throw you in prison instead. And Paul says, well, no big deal. I'll just tell my cellmates, and I'll tell the guards, and I'll tell everyone that I see about Jesus. Well, we can't have that. So what we'll do is we'll just beat you and then let you go. Are you kidding me? I get to be a privilege with suffering for the name of Christ? I mean, Paul is just impossible to relate with at times. But then we turn the page to Timothy. When I look at Timothy, I see myself in him. Timothy is a man who doesn't like conflict. He's not a natural evangelist. It took a great deal of encouragement for Timothy to have the courage to lead in tough situations. Can you relate? The New Testament also tells us that Timothy struggled with chronic health problems. He was laid up for days at a time trying to recover from constant intestinal issues and other problems. His effectiveness in ministry and life really was diminished greatly by his sickness in the days where he felt like he could not go on. Again, maybe you can relate with that aspect of Timothy's life. That you struggle with an autoimmune disease or another chronic illness. Perhaps it's not physical. Maybe it's just emotional. Maybe it's depression or another burden that makes you not want to to go on. When we look at Timothy... We see that God can use anyone. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that God can use someone like you? Someone like Timothy? This book matters a great deal for us because it reminds us that God uses ordinary people who are ordinarily obedient to do extraordinary things for his kingdom. And the final reason why this book matters so much to us today is that our culture is becoming increasingly pluralistic. Our culture is becoming increasingly pluralistic. As we soon will see, as we jump into this book, there's, a, there's some false teaching that's going on in the church in Ephesus. That's at least one of the reasons why Paul writes. He wants to give advice and guidance to Timothy, so that way he knows how to properly address this issue. I don't know if, you, if you've noticed, but our context is increasingly becoming like the Roman Empire. 
We live in a culture that is more and more pluralistic, that we are coming in constant contact with others who do not look at the world the same way that we do. One of the reasons for this is globalization. As technology has increased, the ability to communicate and travel the world has increased as well. This has this resulted in the spread of competing worldviews that now are in such close proximity that they clash in a way that they never have before. Today, we have to wrestle with questions that 100 years ago they didn't have to wrestle with. When we meet someone who is nice, who is moral, and yet is also a Muslim, what do we do? The Bible tells us that salvation is found nowhere else but in Jesus. Our pluralistic culture tells us otherwise. And so what do we do? Do we continue to believe what the Bible has told us or what our culture and even what our experience seems to teach us? Globalization has led to an increasing pluralism of our culture. The second reason is this. We have seen the dissolution of truth over the past 50 or so years. We are seeing people increasingly reject the idea of an absolute truth in favor of more subjective truth. People no longer believe in a universal right or wrong, but now instead they believe in what's right for me or what's right for you or what's true for me and what's true for you. This way, uh, this is not a political statement, by the way. This is just too good to pass up. This way of, of thinking is summed up in the language of a counselor to our new president who referred to alternative facts. This is an oxymoron. It is a rejection of absolute truth. It's a thermometer of our culture telling us that absolute truth no longer exists in the mindset of many people around us. We are seeing a culture that is extremely and increasingly pluralistic because of globalization as well as the dissolution, the the rejection of absolute truth. And it is in this context that 1 Timothy speaks loudly and clearly. As we stand in a marketplace that is increasingly crowded by different worldviews, the gospel rings out in 1 Timothy in a way that is important for us to grasp onto this morning. In fact, Timothy, as as he's receiving these words from Paul, is told this in chapter 3, verse 15. This verse is the most important verse in the entire book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15. Paul sums up his purpose for writing this book. He says this, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of and buttress of the truth. That verse is the central verse in this entire, uh, entire letter. It describes for us what the church is. It is a defensive outpost for the church, or excuse me, for the truth, in a world that simultaneously declares that there is no truth and many truths. The church is founded on the truth. And Paul tells us that it is the church's task to defend it. The image that most clearly describes what this looks like in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, at least to me, is the picture of a lighthouse. A lighthouse in the midst of a great storm as it is assaulted by wave after wave continues to stand strong. Continues to shine its light 
It doesn't matter how assaulted it is by the waves. It doesn't matter how big the waves is. It doesn't matter how great the assault is. The church stands strong because of its foundation on the truth. And 1 Timothy tells us to not lose sight of that. To not lose sight of this truth. No matter what the world says, the word of God will endure. The truth of God, uh, of God, the gospel, shines like a lighthouse. During his earthly ministry, Jesus declared to his disciples that the very gates of hell would not overcome his church. Do you believe that? No matter how big the waves may look, we can be confident that the lighthouse will endure. It will prevail. And it will continue shining. That's why 1 Timothy matters for us today. It matters because we are a young church that wants to glorify God by being a healthy church. It matters because you have a a young pastor and there are a lot of unique challenges that come with that territory. It matters because Timothy reminds us that ordinary people can do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God if they are ordinarily obedient. And it matters because it reminds us of our calling to be a lighthouse in the midst of the darkness of our world, shining forth the gospel to all who see. As we travel on this journey through this book, it's, it's my prayer that we would be receptive to God's spirit and to his leading. It's my prayer that we would be willing to be transformed as individuals as well as a, ch- as a church if that is what God calls for. The reality is, I I love this church, I I love each and every one of you, but my love for this church pales in comparison to the love Christ has for this church. And it's my prayer that we would strive to be a church that puts a smile on his face. It is my prayer that we would one day hear as a church, well done, my good and faithful servants. You've been faithful with a little now you will be entrusted with much. Come and enter into your, father, your master's rest. As we look at First Timothy, that is our prayer. That we would be transformed by the word of God. And our rest of our time this morning, we're just going to look at two verses, the first two verses of this book. It's just an introduction, but I think it does serve as the foundation for understanding who God is calling us to be as a church. It serves as the foundation to understanding what it means to be a healthy church. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along. Uh, Chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. This letter starts the exact same way, for the most part, as most ancient letters do. Today, when we write a letter, we say, dear such and such, and then at the bottom of the letter, we say, sincerely, or, or your friend, or, or whatever the case may be, and then put your name. But when things were written on scrolls in ancient times, you would want to start by telling people who you were. You wouldn't want them to roll out the entire scroll and say, who on earth wrote me this letter and then get to the end and say, oh, that, that's who it is. So you would unscroll, and the first thing you would say is, or see is who this was from and then who this was to. And what I want to drill down into this morning for the rest of our time is just simply how does Paul describe Timothy? 
How does Paul describe Timothy? He describes him as my true son or my true child in the faith. This tells us a lot about Paul's relationship to Timothy. Reminder uh, of his first encounter with Timothy in the book of Acts. He encounters Timothy when he is a teenager living in Lystra, 300 miles east of Ephesus. He asks Timothy to join him on his missionary journeys, and Timothy becomes Paul's constant companion throughout the book of Acts. In fact, if we look at the the letters of the New Testament that are written by Paul, six of them are co-written by Timothy. There is no one who is mentioned in connection with Paul more than Timothy. It's no wonder that Paul calls him my true child in the faith. Now, this isn't a reference to legal adoption. Timothy's mother is mentioned several times in the scriptures as well. This isn't either a reference to him becoming a Christian under Paul's ministry. What we see in the book of Acts is that Timothy was not only a Christian before Paul met him, but he was also a very well-known Christian in his region. What Timothy is saying, or excuse me, what Paul is saying here in this letter is he's saying that you and I have a kindred faith, Timothy. Don't lose sight of that. Even though we may have polar opposite personalities, even though I may be bold and sometimes even brash and you are timid and sometimes fearful, we are united in the gospel and we are united in our faith in Christ. This is at the center of their relationship and is the center, uh, really, uh, of our connection with Paul and Timothy as well. That each and every one of us is a true child of God if we have placed our faith in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying here by opening his letter with a reminder of this connection is to remind Timothy to not lose sight of that, to remember his identity. Just imagine that you are Timothy. You've been placed in charge of one of the largest churches in the world. And this church is not without its issues. There's this growing issue of false teaching in the church. And maybe it's even cropped up because you have been constantly sick and you've been bedridden for days at a time. As Timothy, you, uh, you are timid. And you are very aware of your lack of age, lack of experience. You are physically exhausted. You are emotionally drained and tired from ministry. You feel absolutely overwhelmed by everything that is facing you. And Paul simply opens his letter to you by calling you my true child in the faith. In other words, what what Paul is doing here is he's starting his letter by, by addressing Timothy and saying, remember who you are. Or perhaps more accurately, remember whose you are. He starts his letter with a declaration of Timothy's identity as a child of God. He reminds Timothy that his identity is not primarily rooted in his role as a pastor. His identity is not primarily rooted in his relationship with his mother and his family. His identity starts in his calling before God. What about you? Where is your identity primarily rooted? Can you say with Paul and with Timothy that your identity is found in your status before God? That first and foremost that you are a person of God. That you are counted among the children of God. 
In Romans, Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul is reminding Timothy of his primary identity as a child of God, as an heir of God, as a co-heir with Christ. And so ask yourself, where is your primary identity located? Is your primary identity located in your vocation, in what you do? Is it primarily, primarily located in who you know? Is it primarily located in your family? Is it primarily located in your hobbies? For Christians and for the church, the root of our identity is found in our adoption as Christ's brothers and sisters, as children of God. Do you suffer from a misplaced identity? Do you suffer from a misplaced identity? Do you need a reminder like Timothy of who you are? Do you need the rest, the assurance, the encouragement, the peace that comes through Paul's words? Where is your identity functionally? For the people of God, our identity is to be centered upon Christ and what he has done for us. That Christ, our elder brother, has made us co-heirs with him before his father. As we talk about what it means to be a healthy church, first and foremost, we must recognize that we are the people of God that we are the people of God, that we are those that are in a relationship with a loving Father. Indeed, that's the foundation of a healthy church, understanding who we are and whom we belong to. And so as we close this morning, I just want you to ask, where is my identity found? Where is my identity found? If we're being honest, many of us may recognize cognitively that we belong to Christ, but in reality, we don't really feel that way. When someone asks us who we are, our minds can run to our hobbies, to our jobs, to our vocations, to our families. It's often been said that the longest distance known to man is the distance between the head and the heart, and I think that that's true. It takes a lot to get things out of the file cabinet of your brain into the control command center of your heart. And so if you struggle with your identity like Timothy, just three suggestions to offer you from the beginning of this letter that Paul intentionally says to remind Timothy of who he is. First thing is this, root your secondary identity in your primary identity. Root your secondary identity and your primary identity. Notice how Paul opens his letter. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul opens the letter by declaring his apostleship. He declares his vocation. He's an apostle. And yet he does it in relationship to God. He says, I am an apostle. By the command of God our Father. 
I am an apostle by the command of Christ Jesus, our hope. Here's why this is so important for us. Notice that Paul roots his calling, one of his identities, his secondary identity of what he's called to do. He roots that in his primary identity in God. There is nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with part of your identity being wrapped up in your vocation. That's what Paul says when he calls himself an apostle. There's nothing wrong with seeing yourself as a mom, a dad, a business owner, a teacher, a car enthusiast, whatever the case may be. The question is, is that your primary identity or your secondary identity? Are your secondary identities, which are often good things, are they rooted in your primary identity as a child of God? Or are they rooting out your primary identity as a child of God? The key for us to find our identity in Christ is not to get rid of everything else in our life. Instead, it is to find everything else in Christ. To position everything else in our lives in relationship to our identity in Christ. If you struggle with a mistaken identity, root your secondary identity in your primary identity. Second thing that we see at the beginning of this letter is this, that we are to remind ourselves of our hope. Remind ourselves of our hope. Paul introduces himself as an apostle by the command of God, as well as of Christ Jesus. This is pretty standard. But what's unusual here is that he refers to Christ Jesus as our hope. This is unusual not because Paul doesn't think that that Jesus is our hope, but it's unusual because Paul never describes Jesus this way in his introduction. Paul has a purpose for describing Jesus as our hope. And what he's doing is he's reminding Timothy in the midst of his adversity that his hope is found in Christ. My challenge to you is the same. When you are overwhelmed, when you are distracted, remind yourself of your hope. Remind yourself of where your hope lies and what Christ has done. And the third lesson that we can get from the first few verses here is simply this. Lean on the mercy of God. Lean on the mercy of God. Notice how Paul finishes his greeting. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is different than Paul's typical greetings. He typically just would say, Grace and peace to you. But here he includes this reference to mercy. What, what is he referring to? Why is he adding mercy? Well, simply because he knows that Timothy needs it. He knows that Timothy needs to be reminded of his mercy, of God's mercy, when he fails. When he succumbs to fear and temptation. When he is unable to work because of sickness. To lean on the mercy of God. And to rest in it. Won't you do that this morning? To lean in the mercy of God. To rest in the mercy of God. The mercy that God has for you is great. It is unending. It is full. Where does your identity lie? Like Timothy, let us not let our fears, the uncertainty of this world, distract us from our true calling.
Let us not let the insecurities of our lives overshadow our adoption as God's children. That we are children of God. That we are rescued, reconciled, redeemed because of mercy. First Timothy matters to us. It matters because we want to be a healthy church. It matters because of the, the, the challenges facing our church. It matters because we can all relate to Timothy. It matters because of pluralism. And as we see in these first few verses, it matters because it reminds us of our identity in Christ. Let's pray as we find our identity in Christ. Jesus, we come before you thanking you for what you have done on the cross. That you have made us your brothers and sisters. That you have rescued us. That you have brought us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into your kingdom. And when we face fear, insecurity, when we feel inadequate, I pray that we would rest in our identity in you. Father, that we would recognize that we are children of a good and loving God. We are not slaves to fear, not slaves to this world, but we are to rest in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.